Welcome to the Workplace Evolution Podcast, in association with Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group. Hello and welcome. It's Michael Costello here on the Workplace Evolution Podcast. And you are in luck, as we have permission from the Tower for a behind-the-scenes tour of one of the UK's most famous teams, the Red Arrows. Get those aviators ready, as you're about to hear from former Red Arrows pilot and managing director of Mission Excellence, Justin Hughes, on how you can build a high-performing team and culture to stay agile to all of those unknowns. Also, I wanted to know if the film Top Gun was anything like reality. This led us to explore the value of mavericks in teams, such as Dominic Cummings and Dennis Rodman, and how to ensure high performance with psychological safety. Lastly, listen out for Justin's frank and honest assessment of Simon Sinek's why. Let me know whether you agree or disagree with him. You can find out more about Justin in the podcast notes. As always, please remember to like and subscribe. Oh, hang on. The Red Arrows have just been in touch. It's not quite time to start yet. Wait. Yes, we can go in three, two, one. A huge welcome to the Workplace Evolution podcast. Will you be watching Top Gun 2 if you get the chance? I guess I have to be honest and I'm slightly embarrassed to say yes and probably quite quickly after it comes out. <laughs> I mean, it, it, for me, it seems like the, the romance of beach volleyball and, and wacky call signs is a far cry from reality and, and what contributes to what we're talking about, which is this you know, high performance culture, high performing teams. It is a far cry. Am I, am, I, am I right in thinking that? Yes, it broadly is. The, the, the only reason I say broadly is that the sort of flying you see, although it's a bit hammed up for Hollywood, that kind of is the flying to some extent. But yes, the rest of it is definitely made for Hollywood, unfortunately. <laughs> we'll, we'll test the theory of, of top, if Top Gun is anything like, like reality. I'm pretty, we're pretty sure it, it, it won't be. We've got a lot to get through. Before we do, though, I can't overlook the fact that I've got someone in front of me that's been in one of the most popular teams in the UK. What was it like to be part of one of the most famous teams, the Red Arrows, Justin? When you get selected, you're just excited. And it's like, oh, my God, I've got in and it's going to be so cool. So, you know, you have a fairly shallow reaction to it. And then you start training and you start training in the back seat initially before the person you're replacing leaves. And so you get to see the job from the back seat and you're now going to have to do it. It's not a sort of, oh my God, that would be cool. It's like, I'm going to have to do this. And at that point, it's enormously daunting. Uh, And your first year is pretty challenging, the intensive hard work. And I think as you get into it, and getting into it, you know, it's at least a year, in your sort of second and third year, you you are more comfortable with it. And I think you start to then get a more sort of view of you're very lucky to be there and you're only a custodian of it for a very short time. You want to do a great job. You want to continue the legacy to to make a difference in in the short time you're there. The job itself has a few features that make it intrinsically rewarding. One is that it's challenging. There's not many jobs I don't think or careers where every single day you go to work and you do a task it's a genuine stretch experience so although that's hard it's rewarding and then you also get instant feedback I'm sure we'll talk about it where we debrief straight afterwards and so that combination of constant stretch experience but plus constant 
high quality, fairly objective feedback, you don't really notice at the time, you just notice that it's quite hard work. And um, it's quite hard getting feedback all the time like that. I guess only in hindsight, you realize that was actually a very rewarding way to work. It's trying to find that sweet spot that many coaches, managers and leaders aim for in, in between, I guess, the team being in panic and comfort. It, it very much is like that. Of course, the, the season falls into two halves. And I'm sort of talking about the training here, which is the winter. The summer when you're doing public displays, I wouldn't say you're in a comfort zone in the sense that you've nailed it now and you're completely on top of it. But almost by definition of having reached the standard of doing public displays, it's more comfortable. And then I guess the leader's job then to some extent is to eliminate any complacency. Uh, it, it rarely gets to that stage because it, it's so in such an intrinsic sort of stretch experience anyway. The, even after you've done it for three years, you're working hard. So one word that stands out for me is, is lucky, that you felt l- lucky initially. Mm. And in terms of high-performing teams, a good place to start is, is just to look at the individual themselves and who would be selected into this high-performing team. And one of the things that stands out is during selection onto the Red Arrows, technical competence is pretty much assumed. You might tell me different from what I've read or not, mm. but it's pretty much assumed. And the selection panel seeks individuals who demonstrate extreme personal humility and intense professional will. Why is humility so critical to team performance, do you think? And, and how would we know when we see humility? So I think it's important a number of ways. Um, it's just a nice behavioural trait to be around. Humble people are more pleasant to be around on average than really arrogant people. And obviously when you're working in close proximity with people, you don't all have to be best mates by any stretch, but you do have to have a certain sort of set of broadly common values, broadly similar approach to doing stuff. And you need to be able to get on to a reasonable extent. So it helps in that sense, but then it also plays out operationally and tactically that another trait that I would suggest is sort of highly aligned with humility in this context is objectivity. That being able to deal with things as they really are, especially if they didn't go so well. And if it's you that was the didn't go so well, it needs a bit of humility. Uh, And this ability to learn from experience quickly without being defensive to accept that you might have made mistakes Uh, and give other people feedback on where they can improve in a way that won't make them feel defensive. You know, they're very important drivers of performance. And they're not unique to the Red Arrows. You know, you'll see it in other high-performance teams in sport and in business. The high-performing teams that have genuine longevity um, generally don't believe their own press. You know, they know they're only as good as their last performance. And they have this kind of combination of humility and objectivity to be constantly improving. You know, it ties in with this concept that I'm sure you'll be familiar with, Michael, when people talk about growth mindset, being open-minded to the fact that I could get better here and, and wanting to, you know, going out to look for that. And that relates to so many other contexts, doesn't it? Not, not just in the armed forces or, or the Red Arrows. That phrase of you're only as good as your, your last, last performance is, is something yeah. that managers really need to have conversations with their, their direct reports about. Quite often employees can dine out on a, on a on a key moment or a key contract that they've that they've won mm. if you're really getting the results and you are first in 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 class like you you were and you would have been in in the red arrows 
Um, it's quite refreshing to be in a team where they don't believe their own hype. And that's sending positive messages back. Well, we're bouncing messages around within the team that there isn't a place for ego. Uh, and actually, we're, we're focused on the performance here and now. I mean, let's not make the mistake of saying that these are all perfectly balanced, rational, reasonable individuals who have no ego whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't work quite like that. The fact that job is difficult is a great leveler. Very few people find it straightforward, if any. Um, you know, it will always bite you. It's not just difficult, you know, it carries some risk. Uh, the risk is very well managed, but it will bite you. So you need to be respectful of that. The nature of the debriefing, again, it's back to the things we were just talking about, the objectivity and the, the feedback that performance is measured very sort of explicitly. It doesn't allow you to really stop believing uh, you're quite as brilliant as you might like to think you are. So that's confirmed it for me then. There is no place for Maverick in the Red Arrows. He just wouldn't have gotten in, in past the selection panel. Or let, let's hope so. So I broadly agree with that. In fact, I do agree with it. I unequivocally agree with it. But it is an interesting, it is an, it's an interesting wider point, isn't it, about the role of the Maverick and the high-performance team. The, I think in something like the Red Arrows, where the risk is what it is, then no, you need, it's going to be very difficult to carry somebody who is not wholly aligned with the team's ethos uh, and sort of more general way of doing business. But then I've just watched The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan thing. I'm halfway through. Halfway yeah, through. And it's, it's great. And there's, a, there's one episode in particular around Dennis Rodman. Yes. And he fits that you know, description. He's a maverick within a high-performance team. And the manager of the, um, the Bulls in the Chicago Bulls is quite tolerant of it. He, he's, he's, not, you know, a, he's, not, he's quite an interesting character in his own right, the manager. Um, and he's quite tolerant of Rodman's behavior. Not... It's not a blank sheet of paper. You know, there are limits here, but he kind of recognizes that he brings something to the team, but he, he's, he's a maverick, and we might need to live with a bit of that in order to, you know, get the thing out, get, get the best out of him for the team's greater good. And the interest of the rest of the team broadly buy into it. They call him to account a bit for sure. But they kind of accept him for, for who he is. And I think that's quite rare, and it wouldn't work in every environment. Yeah, I think Michael Jordan wasn't that keen on him going to Las Vegas for 48 <laughs> hours, I think it was, and it turned into four days. But, but I think you're right, a, a leader needs to uh, adapt to each individual's personality. It, would you say that Rodman did kind of fall back into line, though, once, once the, the manager had flexed his approach? But you get the impression that when he was on the team's time, he was wholly there yes. and he was the person you wanted stood next to you. The, the problem is what he got up to when he wasn't on the team's time, which had the potential to impact on the, you know, the team and the team's time. So, yeah, I think he was there in the moment when he needed him to be, but he probably pushed that to about as far as it could be. Well, I, I'm interested in that consistent, deep dedication that from what I've read about the Red Arrows is there and there are along with this humble nature there is a focus on reviewing own, your own performance yeah. but also incredibly high professional standards yeah. it seems wrong to focus on this one but what the one that many people focus on and the one that stands out is this focus on timekeeping and I know that it's so much more than, than that Justin 
but when they start their meeting mm. it's three two one and then we go and i noticed by the way our, our podcast started at 10 o'clock you were bang on 10 o'clock <laughs> um but, you know what why was it so important for red arrows meetings to start on the exact second that the meeting is due to commence because i think there's something bigger going on there yeah there is the, the, there's there's a few things going on simultaneously as with all these things. But, you know, when I first started, I used to think it was a bit excessive because it, we're not just talking about sortie briefs here before you go flying. We're talking about every single meeting. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of sat in my first one of these. I was like, this is a bit ridiculous. You know, these guys need to get a life. But you start to realize over time is that that's just the way we do business around here. And that attention to detail and that professional standard starts to permeate through everything you do. Because what happens, of course, is that you don't adopt a different standard when it's a high-pressure situation. You resort to your default wired-in standard. You don't suddenly manage to have the capacity to behave differently when you're under enormous stress. And so the default wired-in standard is a high standard, and that's the way it happens. And you don't really have to think about these things then. They all just happen automatically. So I think there's a standards bit. And then there's a couple of more sort of pragmatic aspects to it. I'm glad you, you used the word pragmatic to describe the book. It's just really inefficient and wasteful of people's time if you're always starting late. You know, it, as I say, it sends a message, but also if you've got like 10 people in your meeting and you start 10 minutes late, well, you've just wasted 100 minutes of you know, productive time. And if you're in a big corporate and these people are on a lot of money, you've just wasted a ton of money. And so I think this sort of discipline around meeting agenda, meeting timing, and, you know, those, things, those principles applied more generally. I say I think they send a message in terms of how we do business around here, but then they actually have a, a practical knock-on effect as well. This is Saha Hashemi, entrepreneur and founder of Coffee Republic on the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Don't think of a no as a stop sign in business. Think of it as a badge of honour. And this is interesting. I did a bit of work with Dale, Dave Brailsford from you know, British Cycling and Team Sky and Team, Team Ineos. And one of the things that he latched on to was meeting discipline. And he decided that most of the meetings he had were a waste of time. And he fundamentally changed the way they did meetings simply to drive efficiency and performance. Because he thought, we ate the waste of my time, but we were not getting you know, the tangible outcomes out of them because we, we do meetings wrong. I saw another one with David Cameron. He, he made a comment in a book somewhere that um, if he goes to a meeting and there's more than X people, I can't remember, like 10 or 15 or something, he basically leaves the meeting and says, can we reconvene this with the right number of people? Yes, uh, absolutely. There are so many things you pick up over time. I think it's called social loafing. Just Yeah, yeah. When, yeah, I'm very familiar. When you, when you get over the number seven, all of a sudden yes. people start to think, yeah, I'll be all right if I just put, put my feet up on this Yes. One. Highly relevant to sort of brainstorming and cognitive diversity things that yeah. you, you know you may be well aware, but you need to do your original thinking on your own, such that you get the maximum quantity of decent ideas, so that people don't go social loafing. Yeah, so I, I think there are lots of unspoken norms that 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 do go on. You know, no manager's going to turn around to you and say, you know, it's okay for you to turn up ten minutes late. Some <laughs> yes. people, people do, and it and it kind of yeah, that's very good. <laughs> So, you you also talk a lot about in in, in the book review of uh, own own performance, and I wonder if you know were there any things that the Red Arrows did to review their own individual personal performance that others might be able to um, learn from listening to this podcast. So, I think that the thing that 
the, the team and other high-performance teams do is simply that they do review. They, they don't just look at the end-of-year figures or the quarterly figures. Yeah. They actually review performance about what were we trying to achieve, how did we get on, you know, what could be, what was good, what was bad, and why, you know, why is the killer question here? So I think that's the most simple and almost trite answer, but is the biggest gap in a lot of organizations. They simply do it. Uh, and I know there's reasons not to do it, you know, time pressure, commercial pressure, it's not what my boss does, lots of cultural barriers sometimes. But simply, you know, if you, if you don't do that sort of review or debrief process or whatever you want to call it, you know, prepare to make the same mistakes next time as last time. You'll get a bit better by osmosis, you know, you're a year older. But we'd like to accelerate the process a bit faster than that. You know, to just give you a tiny bit of context of how it works as a sort of military fighter pilot and then maybe comment on it a bit more generally. Military flying does lend itself particularly well to debriefing type reviews because the task is very well defined. You, you go to work, you brief to do something, you take off, you go and do it, you land, it's finished, you review it. So it's a well-bounded task. So you sometimes have to work a bit harder in other environments and in the commercial world to bound the task as well as that. They do it immediately afterwards. And the, the general way it works is that you review the plan. Um, maybe not in massive detail, but you know, with the benefit of hindsight, does everybody think that the plan was a good plan? Was it communicated effectively? Do we all understand the same plan? And then you review the execution, and that's the crux of it. What went well and why? What went badly and why? Normally in a chronological order, most plans get executed chronologically. If it's some sort of complex task and as a matrix organization, I guess you, you might review it thematically or something or functionally. You know, chronology would be the obvious default to me. And then we work through it collectively. Nobody's got a monopoly on being right. It's not a chance for the boss to give other people a hard time. The boss has got no monopoly on being right and going into that meeting. And it might be that things that the boss did were a significant factor in whether it worked or not. And, you know, the, the not being the critical one here, that that needs to come out as well. So, you know, the, 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 the kind of idea and the process is fairly straightforward. Why is it tricky in practice? Well, it's tricky to find the time. You have to commit and you have to believe that it's a bit like leadership training. You know, it's not a switch you turn on. You, you've got to believe that it's a good thing to do and it bears dividends over the long term. And then the, the three things that drive the effectiveness of this sort of debrief, in my opinion, are culture, attitude and process. Culture is um, what people in your world, Michael, would refer to as psychological safety here. It's the senior person in the room or the senior people making it okay for everybody else to have the real conversation to call things out for what they really are and challenge and that in my opinion is very much a top-down thing if you work for a psychological pathological nightmare obviously nobody does but you know, just hypothetically um you know that that would be a difficult it's a difficult thing to manage upwards you need the senior people to set the tone and yeah in, an, in a perfect world this would come right from the top of the organization but all we're talking about is the senior people in the room Whatever meeting we're in or whatever Zoom call we're on in the COVID world, the senior people to make it okay to, for everybody else to have the real conversation. And that often comes from them just being honest or admitting a few mistakes of their own. You know, it's not rocket science, but it's a big barrier to cross to make it okay to have the conversation. So that's what I mean by the cultural issue. The attitude issue is everybody else understanding what's going on and being broadly bought into it. So playing the game as well, playing the team game, contributing in a, in a meaningful way, um, admitting their own mistakes and having a positive attitude towards this review process. 
and the process is what it is. It's almost the easiest bit, but you do need some structure and process. You, you don't want to start your review with, how does everyone think that went? <laughs> I'm always surprised and amazed that, m that many organizations don't engage in a formal project close, for example. Yes. And I, I think it's, it is about being brave and being, being open. Great ideas like inviting in other project managers to, to see the results, inviting in mm. feedback, giving feedback. All of that really requires some sort of bravery and, as you say, psych psychological safety. But mm. if they've had their fingers burnt in the past, all of a sudden these project reviews just don't take place. And particularly yes. if the projects are costly, the projects tend to fizzle out and kind of disappear. They had mm. huge kind of fantastic launches and, and the yeah. reviews don't, don't take place. So uh, when you think about psychological safety in the current climate, what, what do you think are some of the risks to a team's psychological safety that in, in turn would harm those honest conversations that you've mentioned? The one thing that might be a factor, though, in the current environment is pressure that businesses, a lot of businesses, will be under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, revenue's taken a massive hit, people are having to lay people off, you know, and it, in small businesses, it's a, you know, fight for life. In big businesses, it's a, a fight to, you know, for reducing costs, keeping going, managing investor expectations, a lot of short-termism. And so pre the pressure on individuals leads sometimes to, you know, suboptimal behaviours and, there's an ambiguity issue and then there's this pressure issue that we don't really, there's much more ambiguity and uncertainty than there was previously. And so ambiguity generally requires judgment. And as you will well know, judgment is subject to cognitive biases. We're not as good at it as we think we are. So there are lots of techniques we can do individually, collectively to be better at that. But the general rule is if we don't do any of those things, we're pretty poor at it and we think we're brilliant at it. Yes. Yeah. So we're having to make a lot of judgment calls under ambiguity at the moment. So you get this cognitive bias, but then you also get motivational bias, the, the pressure that your boss puts on you and the organization to do things that aren't necessarily the best thing for the long term. You know, get this job done almost at whatever cost. You know, in high-risk industries, you see this all the time. It doesn't have to be COVID times, whereby there's always a tension between operations, money, and safety. And the one that gets the priority is the one that's on your boss's agenda and not necessarily the one that your boss or the boss of the organization is pushing or not the one they're pushing in the public domain it's the one they're actually pushing the thing that's subliminally getting rewarded and recognized and gets you on in the organization where people are under a lot of short-term pressure at the moment then those pressures will drive certain behaviors and decision making which may not actually be the best or the most healthy things for the long term it's raises the importance of leaders and managers to reiterate the values if in fact they want to stay to those values so yes. we talk about fairness and openness and people getting mm. there on on merit mm. rather than as you say short-termism gains or, or or results i think you're i think you're absolutely right so suboptimal behaviors can come about under pressure i guess it's the, up to the leader and the manager to be aware of where are those to and to maintain that psychological safety as well if we come back to the foundations that leaders and managers need to get right i think you're starting to touch on the why 
why we do what, what we do. Uh, and, and you stressed the importance of clarity and common purpose. And you even recalled a sign at one of your RAF bases that read, the job of this base is to fly and fight. The job of those that don't is to support those that do. Everyone is an aviator. So if we just think about the red arrows for, for a second, what, what is the why of the red arrows? And has that changed over time? So the why of the Red Arrows is public relations. It's often confused with recruitment. And obviously those two things are actually quite related. But bear in mind that there's not, not really ever a shortage of people who would like to be fighter pilots. So although there's often a wider, there's a wider recruitment issue in the armed forces, recruiting pilots isn't generally a supply-limited issue. But that's the, the recruitment's not the sort of key point. The key point is public relations to show off the, the armed forces and the military through a display of professional excellence. Just before answering your question about, you know, has that evolved? I do think it's an interesting issue, this, about how important is that to the people on the team? It's sort of important in their DNA that they want to do a great job and they hold themselves to a very high standard through the way they debrief. Actually, they hold themselves to a much higher standard internally than externally. The standard in the debrief is very high. So they're kind of doing that without thinking about it. But I would suggest that they're probably more focused on the what. It's an interesting example, a job like that, where the job is intrinsically challenging and rewarding in its own right. And so you'd kind of go to work anyway. You know, it's like, you don't even have to pay me for this. Like, you pay me as well. This is amazing. I can't, I can't <laughs> believe this. I get to fly these planes and you pay me. Um, oh, and it has some great spin-offs for the, uh, the armed forces in the country. Brilliant. You know, the, the why is almost a bonus in that environment. There's always going to be a bit of why, isn't there? Well, I saw an interesting piece recently, and it was about how well the US treats its veterans. It, it, in fact, what it was, it was, an inter- it was a follow-up on this reporter being embedded in Baghdad during the surge with this U.S. unit, so when things were really bad, and he'd written about them. And then he followed up, you know, 20 years later to see how they turned out, having gone through that experience. That One of them said about how other people treat him, and everyone says, thank you for your service, which is a very American thing. We do it a tiny bit here, but very American. To which his response was, you know, or his thinking was, I didn't do it for you. Why are you thanking me? I did it because it was a job and it was cool and I wanted to do it and I liked my mates. And I think that's true of a lot of the military, to be honest. That, yeah, you're right. That At a sort of more strategic level, the longer you're in, hopefully, I guess, the more you buy into the, the bigger picture. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people who join the military, you know, you join, you've seen Top Gun or you've seen the adverts or you think it's going to be great. And yeah, you know, it's not illegal or selling drugs or something, but actually you don't join to serve queen and country. You join because it offers an interesting opportunity and challenge. Yeah. And I guess that is particularly true in the Red Arrows. Bear in mind, these people are pre-selected. They're already in the military. The whole thing with the, you know, the Red Arrows is that you probably join for some fairly shallow reasons because it looks like a challenge and it's going to be cool and it's going to be great. But then, actually, what it turns out is the intrinsic reward of the job itself is so good and so challenging that 
you know, if you ask people why they did it, I think most of them are a bit of a loss. It's like, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. It's it's not because yeah. like I want to be recruitment or PR or I'm on some big ego trip. It's just cool as shit and it's really challenging. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it's intuitive. You, you get it. You get it right away on the adverts. Not everybody yeah, but, needs that deep, huge meaning behind well, everything that they do. Well, you need some meaning, but it's not. It comes back to the Simon Sinek thing. It's not the meaning that he says, in my opinion. And it's definitely customers. Definitely, he makes this big deal about that. Why these companies are so successful? I think it's complete bullshit because nobody'd do business with Amazon or Facebook if they did it on the sense of why. And yet, they're two of the most successful companies in the world. That's a great point. This is David Coulthard on the Workplace Evolution Podcast, the podcast that gets the listener up to speed on leadership and management. I mean, has it changed over time? Um, I believe, you know, I'm not that close to it now, but I believe it is changing now because of money as much as anything that can, with the, and you know, the, obviously this is about to get 10 times worse in the next year or two, with the pressure on the public purse and a, a vastly reduced Air Force, can you afford to have a full-time professional display team running around the world and the UK doing loop the loop? You know, what's the point of that if there's no recruitment problem? Um, but obviously this comes up and has come up regularly over many years. Can we afford to keep doing this? And the military have offered the red arrows up quite a few times as we can save this money, at which point I think the Treasury generally agree it. And I hear it anecdotally that it gets to sort of the cabinet or something. And the, the cabinet says, oh my God, you know, we're not going to be the government that stops the red arrows. But it is under a lot of pressure. And then so one way in which it's changed a little bit or it's evolving now is, does this, should, it, should the red arrows be an asset of the armed forces? to show off the military to drive PR and recruitment as a sort of second effect, or should it be an asset of UK PLC that is used more internationally to show off the UK? And actually about two, two, three years ago, um, the Red Arrows did a big tour to China. And the, that tour, you know, let's be honest, China's not a military ally of ours. We don't need to do a lot of PR for the armed forces in China. That tour was wholly around promoting um, UK PLC and uh, in parallel promoting, uh, they did a lot of work on promoting STEM to all the places they visited. Do you think that that might just weaken the brand and the reputation of the Red Arrows if, if the Y kind of shifts that closer to a more of a commercial element rather than what, what it is or what it's been known for? I'm not sure. I because it still be they would the team would still be used in that context for a sort of you know a, a greater good that served the UK. Where it the waters might get a bit muddy is where you get into commercial sponsorship. You know, if the team is being used to promote a commercial aim, yeah, and and maybe the people who are the beneficiaries of that are, are providing some form of sponsorship, then that starts to. In, introduce some interesting incentives and potential conflicts of interest yeah i can i can see it now writing some brand's name in smoke exactly uh, yes in the sky not not a great look for the diehard red arrows fans and i guess that's no. having complete clarity on the why uh, yes absolutely when we take when we take the why we then start to look at teams around um how do we measure performance if we know the why mm. 
start to think about how we measure performance and how we reward performance. Mm. And the, the book's got some really strong examples of uh, Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport and mm. the, the Olympics, where they've had a, a large number of teams collaborating together. Mm. What is it that high-performing teams get right, do you think, in terms of rewarding and, and measuring performance? So I don't think you can separate this from the conversation we just had about the what and the why. That is the starting point. And, you know, I've done some work with clients on this myself, framing a what and a why for them. We'll generally spend half a day on it, literally, on, you know, a couple of sentences to get this specifically right. You know, what's the thing we're trying to achieve and why is it important? Um, so you need to put a bit of effort into getting that right. And then once you've got that what, the, what I might call your intent, the thing you're aiming to achieve, then the next thing, your measures of success. I think the real challenge is, this, what is the smallest number of things I can measure that will tell me that I'm progressing or achieving the aim? Because we tend to measure a gazillion things. Um, and I, I've seen an example recently where an organization measured, uh, were very good at this stuff and measured an awful lot of stuff. And in my opinion, none of the things they measured told them anything at all about whether they're making progress or not. And you need to be sort of separate out your effectiveness and your efficiency. Effectiveness to me is, are we achieving the goal? What's the smallest number of things that will tell me that we're actually progressing in the right direction? And you might have another level below that of, you know, KPIs and what have you, sort of leading indicators of that. But I think you just need to be very careful here to separate out your means and your ends. If, if you start rewarding and recognizing people on KPIs, which is effectively what I was talking about in that other example, if a KPI is one small part of the system and you put a lot of focus on it, people will then focus on delivering that irrespective of whether it's making any difference to the system or not. I think there's that collective responsibility for the main KPIs that everyone's going to have to grasp mm. right now. And I think the more successful projects that you've mentioned, everyone took responsibility for those main key, mm. key goals. How do you how do you start to introduce that, that accountability and responsibility across the board? Um, keep it simple. You know, even on big projects, keep it simple. That matrix organization, you know, there's lots of good reasons why people have matrix organizations. Big organizations are big and complicated almost by their very nature. So there's different ways of organizing. When you get to the stage where nobody is actually personally accountable for anything, then nothing happens very effectively yeah so try and keep it simple you know once you make people personally accountable for things and this is not a blame culture it's almost you know i'm trying to induce the opposite almost but it then becomes clear and but you, you, if you're going to make them accountable for something you have to give them the levers to be able to deliver that thing then you can't say you know you're responsible for the PL in this bit um but then not give them decision making authorities to make changes within that but, you know, whatever your, your solution is, you need to understand, you know, what's the thing that I want people to be responsible and accountable for? Then, you know, put the right measures on it and then make sure they've got the, the levers to be able to affect that thing. It's often a conversation that can be overlooked or, or avoided, actually. But some managers aren't keen on giving pure accountability sometimes, which can end mm. up with things going disastrously wrong. Um, mm. Speaking of disastrously wrong, actually, 
we can have the why, we can have clarity in the KPIs, the reward and the measurement, but we still need that commitment. And there's a responsibility from leaders mm. to drive that commitment. Most recently, we've, uh, we've seen some senior officials in government uh, that have communicated a, a, a purpose uh, during the lockdown and perhaps flexed that commitment a little bit, Justin. Uh, What's the impact, do you think, of inconsistent leadership like that on a team's commitment? So let's not skirt around the issue. You're, you're clearly <laughs> talking about Dominic Cummings, although he wasn't the only one. Uh, I don't know the guy. I, don't, I, I only know the facts as they were reported in the papers. So I have no first-hand knowledge of this whatsoever. Um, and so I don't know the rights and wrongs of the personal decision he made. That said, he should have been aware that whatever the rights and wrongs were, there was going to be a perception and a role modeling issue here. Uh, and that can be as important as the facts. And he should have been able to work that out, I think. And then the, the problem, of course, it, it then induced was the one for the prime minister. Although he was a, a sort of relative innocent in what Cummings did, the prime minister was undermined by supporting him. Because on the one hand, the Prime Minister is saying one thing, but then trying to justify a divergence from that one thing, which to many people was unjustifiable. So his credibility was reduced. And you see this a lot with, you know, in, in, in is an easy example in commercial environments where you say, well, these are our values or our behaviors or attributes, whatever you want to call them, and they're really important. And then you have somebody in your organization who absolutely nails the numbers hits it out of the park solves all sorts of problems for you but measured against the behavioral stuff they're pretty dysfunctional and they're quite a negative impact on the team what do you do with that person it's a difficult one because it undermines not just the behaviors but it undermines what you're promoting as a leader that you're clearly turning a blind eye to that stuff when it suits you well we can't always see the repercussions directly of rewarding that individual you know, yes. numbers, um, but, but demonstrated poor, poor behaviours, poor, poor mm. values. Um, but more often than not, it is people will leave, leave the team, maybe not immediately, but over time they can become disenchanted. Mm. Uh, what you're saying and, you know, your ability to influence and persuade thereafter and your credibility uh, is going gonna, is gonna to suffer. And we'll, we'll see how it pans out yeah. for certain officials. That yeah, the, the, the bank of goodwill and credibility has a debit against it. You know, and it's, it's only got so much credit in it. There's something that you said it in, uh, about a particular military operation. You described a junior officer who might be leading on a mission in the mm. British forces, mm. which could have a Saudi general in or an American colonel on the same mission. But in the context of the mission, they would defer to the junior officer. I love that from the sense mm. of just the individual's empowerment, growth. Mm. That, you know, you're talking about that, that balance, that stretch. Mm. That's certainly a stretch. Do you feel uh, other organizations could be perhaps more agile like this in, in the allocation of leadership roles and, and accountability then, Justin? Yes, I think it's true that uh, people who've had limited contact with the military get hung up on some of the preconceptions about what the military's like. Stereotypes that sometimes have a grain of truth in them, but are often far removed from the reality day to day. And one of them is about hierarchy and command and control. 
you just do what you're told, you salute people more senior than you. And yet, historically, the military is a hierarchical organization, and some parts of it would definitely still are, well, most parts are to some degree. But then there are parts where, that are doing the, the most agile tasks, by which I probably mean special forces and faster aviation, where it's too fast moving and there's too much risk to be hung up on hierarchy and rank. And so, yeah, that thing I described about saluting, knowing where you are in the chain, in line management, absolutely, that never changes. The person who's more senior than you gets saluted, they wear the rank on the shoulders, you know exactly where you stand. But in the operational task, the person who leads is the person best equipped to lead the task, not necessarily the most senior. Uh, and the senior people often are not doing as much flying because they have wider management responsibilities. So on a flying mission, the senior people will often take a subordinate role. But in, and in the context of the mission, they would defer to the task leader. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not still the senior line manager. So they would still have the authority to pull rank if they wanted to or had to, you know, if they saw something going very wrong. But as a general principle, uh, the team is constructed according to the task, not according to our internal hierarchy. And in a different language, it's a very sort of external or customer or market way of thinking about it. We, we, we put together a team we need to get the job done. We don't get too hung up on how we're structured internally. Do you find in the conversations that you have with your own clients then, Justin, that you might question that you might question the structure and and in particular in the current climate where we will need to be significantly yeah. more agile to, to yeah. the demands that are out there yes i mean it, there's a great irony here that quite a few of these people who would regard the military as very hierarchical i find their their own organizations are far more hierarchical yeah Com commercial organizations nobody wears rank but uh, many are deeply hierarchical <laughs> okay you mm. wrote that for two minutes the team would discuss how they would deal with specific scenarios such mm. as technical failure in the air or potential mm. emergency tell me more about that how did the team benefit from from those discussions so th this would be something that happened in the before the event rather than at the end of the day so um it, what you're trying to do here is prepare for the unexpected so I would suggest there are three types of scenarios that you face. You've got known knowns, things that you pretty much know are going to happen, um, and you can predict them, and you've got a reasonable amount of confidence what they'll look like when they happen. We have standard operating procedures for those. If you know it's going to happen at some point, and you know what it looks like, script it. And people have thrown that back at me and said, yeah, well, you know, that's very inflexible and blah, blah, blah. You know, you're all automatons. Uh, my retort to that is no. Having good standard operating procedures is not what makes us inflexible. It's what makes us flexible exactly. because it frees up your brain power for the clever stuff. So this is the kind of static stuff that's locked down that we know it's going to happen. We lock it down. We don't waste brain power on it. But then there's your known unknowns that you, you can kind of half predict things that might not go your way. And you can sort of half foresee what they might look like, but you don't know when they'll happen and you don't know exactly how they'll play out. Well, this is what, we do contingency planning for. I, I saw an MIT professor talk about some vaguely related. He had a different phrase, which I thought was quite good. He called it dynamic rehearsal. And that's what we're doing here. The static stuff you can just write down. The dynamic rehearsal, you need to kind of stress test different scenarios. So what happens in practice every morning, you know, the example you said, we have a weather brief. We talk for two minutes about technical problems. So it just, it's just two minutes professional development every day. Keeps people thinking about technical issues. Every time we fly, so pre-execution brief, 
we talk about what could go wrong on this particular event. Either what's the worst thing that could happen or what's the most likely or some combination thereof. And what happens is the thing that you talk about never happens on that day, hardly ever. Um, but what happens is if you're constantly doing this dynamic rehearsal, stress testing your own thinking, um, you start to build this kind of mental database of things that might go wrong. And when they do go wrong, you dip in the database. You don't just make it up. You, you don't want to be making a high pressure decision under enormous stress, having never thought about it before. So you take something you've already spoken about and you massage it to the situation you're facing. And the final version is unknown unknowns, you know, COVID-19. You know, some people have said to me, well, how can you prepare for an unknown unknown? It's irrational. You can't have a plan for it. That would be irrational. But what you can have is absolute clear, simple priorities. So that when you're facing, you know, very fast moving, ambiguous, uncertain situations, you've got very clear, simple priorities to fall back on. Okay, thank you for that, Justin, because uh, throughout uh, this interview and throughout the book, by the way, there are some many examples where you are very open, really shared all of that experience um, so well with, it, with, with the readers and, and, and here today. What is the next step for, for you at the moment with, with Mission Excellence and the consultancy that, that you're leading on at the moment? Um, you know, Mission Excellence is a consultancy around building high performance cultures. It has a website, missionexcellence.com, if I'm allowed to mention that. Um, and so, you know, there are, it's quite a broad church, that piece around high performance culture. So teams, leadership, um, strategic work, decision making under ambiguity. I've never been particularly comfortable just sitting on the sidelines, you know, being a coach, consultant, speaker, advisor. Uh, by, by nature, sort of personality coming from the military, I'm very much an on the pitch getting stuff done. And then most recently, I've just had about seven months as a senior line manager embedded in what starts as a consulting engagement, but embedded in a large global corporate owning a P&L. And I want to get my hands dirty in all the, the stuff you're talking about and the stuff that's in the book. I kind of feel almost some sort of, not just an obligation, but a desire to, you know, put myself to the, the, the acid test. So I guess the challenge for me is, you know, what's the, what's the next challenge? for me and i'm open-minded what that might look like a continuous stretch it sounds like just the new yeah <laughs> there's so there'll be so much for those that are listening they'll have taken so much i'm sure from from your ideas and the discussion to, to guide them through this volatile uncertain complex environment but but also just simply to take uh, a, a culture and build a, a high performance culture that's you know greater than the sum of its parts as, as they say good luck with your future projects thank you uh, with mission excellence just and thank you for being our guest thank you all the best remember guys keep calm and carry on and if all else fails subscribe share and like the workplace evolution podcast